Amen. Please be seated. Last week I started just a three-week series to start the new year. This is the second of those sermons. It's on the spiritual tools that we need for spiritual growth. I submitted to you that we make spiritual growth too complicated with all the various books and programs and conferences and uh, latest, greatest ways to follow this six-step plan and you will grow in Jesus, when in fact the scripture is very clear about what the church looks like when it's most utilizing those tools that God has given for it to grow in grace. And uh, that's what I want to focus on for these three weeks as we start a new year, that we would really as a church be focused on the tools God has given us, the means of God's grace, the means that God has given us to grow in grace. He's been specific with us in Scripture, so let's look there now. I'll read Acts 2, 38 through 42, as we again consider the tools to help us grow spiritually, the beginning of 2010. Hear God's holy, inspired, infallible word. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you, and to your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have not uh, given us to wander this world aimlessly, but you have given us a means to grow in Jesus, united us together with him by faith, and you have given us tools to grow spiritually. You have given us your word, the apostles' teaching. You've given us the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. You've given us prayer. We can commune with you. We can speak directly with you because of the bold Uh, mediation of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. God, we thank you for these tools. I pray, Lord, that we would not make things too complicated in 2010 and beyond, that we would focus upon what the church focused on in this passage, devoting ourselves, please, Lord, to your teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. I tried to give a a metaphor that I thought was more fitting for the Christian life than the usual ones we hear. I give the metaphor of climbing a mountain, and not just any mountain. I'm talking Mount Everest. I think we don't do ourselves any service when when we think that the Christian life will somehow be easier or that the path will be very smooth, or do we help a new believer when we try to depict this idea that when you come to Jesus, things will all just really make clear sense to you and you'll just do great, because it doesn't take long for us to realize there are Lots of chasms and caverns and pitfalls and problems and challenges. God knows this. We're in a fallen world. We're not free of our fallenness completely. We will struggle. And so the picture of climbing a mountain, a great mountain, is, I think, a much better, much more uh, fitting metaphor for the Christian life. So if we think of that for a moment, think of something like climbing Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. It's in the border of Nepal and Tibet, and it's over 29,000 feet and to climb that mountain requires months of preparation. You t- it takes just a week to get to the base camp, which is at 17,700 feet. Once you get to the base camp, you have to stay there for two or three weeks, depending on how long it takes you to acclimatize, so you can actually breathe the air enough to climb. 
and it just has to, it just takes at least most people two weeks. Some over a month they've got to stay there until they're ready to go from the 177 to the first camp, which is at 21,000 feet. Well, it, it is a, an endeavor that is monumental. It's what life is like. It's a climb. It's preparation. It takes patience. There was a guy who wrote a book on his experience of climbing Everest. He was a journalist, and he was paid to go be part of an expedition that was going to the top, 1996. The same year and the same expedition he was part of, 12 different people died because a storm came on their descent. But he gives the whole story in a book called Into Thin Air. It's a phenomenal read. It took me two days. I couldn't put it down. And in it, he describes what it felt like just at base camp starting this trek up the mountain. Listen to his description. It's vivid indeed. He says, despite the many trappings of civilization at base camp, there was no forgetting that there were more than three miles, we were more than three miles above sea level. Walking to the mess tent at mealtime left me wheezing for several minutes. If I sat up quickly, my head reeled and vertigo set in. The deep, rasping cough I developed a week earlier worsened day by day. Sleep became elusive, a common symptom of minor altitude illness. Most nights I'd wake up three or four times gasping for breath, feeling like I was suffocating. Cuts and scrapes refused to heal. My appetite vanished, and my digestive system, which requires abundant oxygen to metabolize food, failed to make use of much of what I forced myself to eat. Instead, of my body, instead my body began, began to consume itself for sustenance. My arms and legs gradually began to wither to stick-like proportions. Climbing Everest is a monumental task, and I submit to you that the Christian life, this life, is a monumental task. You need several pieces of equipment to get through, to get to the top. To climb Everest, you need special boots, super line, withstand extreme cold, with traction, spikes to grip into the ice and rock, support to hold your ankle firm. You need specially outfitted suit that is filled with down but not so heavy that it adds too much weight. Nylon on the outside to withstand 50 to 70 mile an hour winds towards the, te- towards the peak. You need an axe three feet long, hard aluminum that will catch you from falling. It will help you progress. Use it as a walking stick. The last 3,000 feet, you'll need oxygen. People climb it without it, but not well and often suffer greatly without it. The last 3,000 feet. You need a tank of oxygen to get you there and to get you back. To live the life of spiritual growth, to experience life abundantly, we need several tools as well. So as we begin this new decade, let us be reacquainted with the tools that God has ordained for us to grow spiritually. We call them the means of grace, just a technical way of saying tools for spiritual growth. You'll see on your notes I've repeated question 88, which we started the series with says, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption? We have these great benefits that come with being right with God through Jesus' sacrifice. But there are more benefits that you can imagine that we can experience throughout our life being in right communion with God. So God gives us a means where, by where, way we can have these things communicated to us. We can perceive them. And the answer says it well. The outward and ordinary means whereby God communicated to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances. He's talking about those things that are prescribed by Scripture, commanded by Scripture, revealed by Scripture. Especially, and he lists three, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, a couple comments there. 
when we're talking about these three elements, they are existent in the Acts passage that we began with. People were baptized, they broke bread. These are the command, these are the sacraments. The apostle teaching is the word of God in prayer. The elements that are captured by the catechism rightly outlines what scripture says. The word of God, sort of like the boots the climber would wear, keeps us stable, keeps us firm, keeps us safe, keeps our footing, you might say. We could say the sacraments are sort of like baptism being in the snowsuit, where we put something on that gives us a level of protection, identity, so people can see who we are, where we are. The Lord's Supper might be like that ice axe that helps you progress little by little. You may take some steps, but you need a little more boost as you go. Prayer, sort of like that oxygen that is needed, especially the last 3,000 feet. The tool we studied first last week, the Word of God, gives us revelation. You might say it's the primary means. It gives us revelation to the others. But today, let's look at the second tool, which comes in two parts. We call them the sacraments. And the sacraments literally mean sacred things, sacredly ordered by God, revealed by God to be special, to help us supernaturally, to grow in grace. Our catechism, which is part of our doctrinal statement, helps you know what we believe the scriptures teach. And so this is why we use this as a tool to help us understand the Bible's teaching on the sacraments. Understood that people have differing opinions on the sacraments among the church of God. But I don't think we differ with the fact that they should be part of the church's life. The breaking of bread and, of course, baptism. Look at the question that's before you on your outline. Question 92. What is the sacrament? Very well stated, it says, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, and that is meant you can taste, feel, touch, they're sensible, sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. We see how they represent the new covenant, the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of his redemption shown in the signs, represented this way. Sealed means that it comes with a seal or an authenticating note of the king. When something is sealed, a note is written. The king takes his signet ring and puts a wax seal, puts the signet ring in. So when you receive it, you see that came from the king. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, represent seals. They're official from the king. And apply to us as believers what they represent. They represent the washing away of our sins, both by the water and baptism and by the sacrifice of Christ represented in the table. We see these things represented, sealed and applied to believers in a way that God ordains specially, unlike other ways. Well, a good follow-up question. We seek these tools. What are the sacraments of the New Testament? Very simply, the, the question asks, and the answer is, the sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, please recognize that baptism and the Lord's Supper were not just initiated completely new and fresh in the New Testament. They have long roots that go back into the Old Testament. Baptism, for instance, comes from the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. The way people were identified with God was to be circumcised. Abraham came to faith, then he circumcised himself, and then the rest of his offspring. When the New Testament comes, Jesus fulfills this and gives a new sign, which is baptism, to identify with him. We identify with the God of Abraham through circumcision. The God of Abraham is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, and we identify with him in baptism. So there's a connection, a continuum from the sacrament in the Old, 
the sacrament of the new, now baptism. Similarly, the Lord's Supper finds its roots in the Passover meal. The Passover, you remember when it happened, when the lamb was sacrificed and blood was put in the doorpost. And the angel of death would come across and all the firstborn would die if the blood was not covering them. But if the blood was covering them, they would live. And the Passover meal was celebrated to consistently remember the redemption of God. Well, the redemption of God comes in Jesus, the Passover lamb, sacrificed for us, as Paul says in Corinthians. And he then gives us the supper, the Lord's Supper, which is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. The sacrament of the old, now the sacrament of the new, is Jesus himself represented in the bread and the wine. Let's look at these two sacraments closely. And I'll give a layout of what we believe about these so you might understand them better and recognize their importance as spiritual tools. What is baptism, the catechism says? Well, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the signifying seal are engrafting into Christ, and the partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace, and our engagement to be the Lord's. You can see the elements that are listed are very plain. Water, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Of course, Jesus in Matthew 28 gives as part of the Great Commission, baptism. In fact, the Great Commission is about discipleship. It's about bringing people to Christ and them growing in Christ. And he uses baptism as part of this discipleship process, the identifying together with Christ. And he says to baptize them, which there are many meanings for this word, but it's with water. We know that for sure. No debate there. It's water. That's the element. And then we do so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is part of the discipleship process. It has meaning. It's not just simply dedicating. It's not just simply uh, noting someone making a decision. It's about identifying with God in Christ. His command for us to do in Him. Romans 6 gives us the, one of the many benefits of baptism. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. It's a picture of our real spiritual rebirth, pictured in baptism. You remember, not too long ago, hopefully, in Galatians 3:26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, a good question that arises and is discussed often and has been in the history of the church is, how should a person be baptized? What, what kind of mode? How much water, basically? Well, the Greek term itself, it's an interesting study to say the least. The Greek term itself uh, comes in many forms. It's used 80 different times in several different ways. Uh, baptismo, baptismos, baptisma, uh, bapto, several different terms. And you might think, as some will say, that it always means some, one thing, but it doesn't. It means several different things when it's used in different contexts as far as how much water, whether it be sprinkling, pouring, immersing, dipping. All of these are used. In, they're all used in the New Testament. If you look beyond the New Testament, you'll see a diversity of uses for this word. But just keeping to the New Testament, you'll see that used differently as well. There's Levitical purifications referred to. Like in the changing of the water to wine, there were pots used for purification in the word baptismos used there for pots. So clearly it had to be poured or sprinkled in that situation. But there are other times in which it's used. The baptism that John uses seems to be where they go down into the water and are either immersed or water's poured on them or they go partly the way in. We're not told exactly. 
all kinds. The traditions of the rabbis who added ceremonial washings of their own. So baptism carries with it uh, a little bit of ambiguity with regard to exactly how much water should be used. But no one debates that water ought to be used in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. It's clear, this much anyways. When should a person be baptized has also been long discussed, and so we take it on here. Psalm, in, uh, in the 95th question, look what it says. To whom is baptism to be administered? Well, baptism is not to be administered. One of the only questions, by the way, that starts negatively. Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church. In other words, this is a sacrament given to the visible church of Christ. Till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as our members of the visible church are to be baptized. Now, that might strike someone who doesn't understand this background. Why do they just tack that on? Well, there's a key concept in understanding baptism as a sign of the covenant. It, it is rooted in the sign that God gives Abraham and perpetuates and then changes with Christ. But the key passage in understanding the relationship or the transference, I would point you to Acts 2, the passage I read to begin. If you look there on your outline to Acts 2, 38 to 42, I want you to look at that with, with a set of lenses that is like unto the lenses that the Jewish believers who first heard Peter speak would have seen through. And what I mean is this is primarily a Jewish audience in Acts chapter 2. In fact, Peter accuses them of being uh, complicitous in the death of Jesus. He says, you killed them to the Jews. So they, have, they were steeped in covenantal understanding. There was no Jewish person standing there with their family thinking for a moment that this was just an individual thing, that God did not have covenant with his family. He would have understood how children played into the covenantal understanding of the Old Testament. This is the lens through which they would have seen. And so when Peter speaks, they see through these lens and hear what he says. He says in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. I promise you the adults didn't just look at each other at that moment and say, He just means us. He just not got it. Or he just means us and the 13-year-olds. Or he just means us and the 10-year-olds. And he means us and 11 Let every one of you be baptized, is what he says at this first sermon to these newly uh, receiving of the gospel Jewish people. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you. No, that's not it. The, the complete sentence is important here in understanding the transference. Peter says, for the promise is to you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is a clear covenantal connection. And if there was a change at this point in the history of God's people, where children were no longer to receive the sign of the covenant, that question would have been asked every, to every apostle and in every epistle there would be some section to address it. And the simple reason why it's not is because it wasn't a question. It was well understood. The children should receive the sign of the covenant. It was also well understood that the children didn't receive salvation by virtue of the sign. The sign identified them together with God, whom they owed an obligation to, to believe in him, to obey him. Again, those were gifts of grace, but it's God's ordained gift, his sacrament that he gives us as a tool of discipleship, even beyond ways we completely understand. So we see that it represents our union with Christ. Purification, cleansing, represents another kind of baptism mentioned in the New Testament, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It shows us the coming of the Spirit upon the person to apply the work of Christ. It doesn't do it, but it shows what God does. Like that warm covering snowsuit that we need to climb Everest that gives us identity. People see 
looking ahead can tell us, us climbing, it's us. It gives us an identity. It, it connects us together with the people of God. And that's valuable and it's helpful and it's a great tool in your growth. As the question answers, it signifies, the answer to the question says, it signifies and seals our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and of our engagement to be the Lord's. Baptism, important part of the life of the church, so important that Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's part of discipleship. But there's another sacrament referred to, as you well know, the Lord's Supper. Uh, the sacrament of baptism is initiatory. It's a one-time act. No, no doubt every time another person is baptized, the church celebrates that and reflects back upon their own baptism. But as far as being applied to us, only once. Whereas the Lord's Supper is perpetual. It's a constant help in growth, in grace. And we see that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper from the upper room. Matthew 26, among other places, he says, and takes the cup, takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to the disciples, says, take, eat, this is my body. And the cup he took, and it would have been probably, most likely, as part of the Passover meal, the, the cup of wrath, uh, the, the deep red wine that would have been used to symbolize the shedding of his blood, saying, this is me that it represents. So take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. Then Paul, a few years later, uh, gives this revelation to us through Corinthians as it re- he received it from the Lord. He basically says what Jesus says. When he'd given thanks, he'd broken and said, this is my body, this is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So he makes the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Passover to the Lord's Supper, instituted by Jesus himself, restated by the Apostle Paul. Well, what is it? What is this meal? Question 96 gives a great biblical answer. We'll refer to some of the passages, and you'll know some of them as you hear the language of the answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. Not taking it in a corporal or carnal manner means that you don't come to the Lord's Supper and have its effect do its work because of some special magical thing that happens in the elements. It has its effect because you have faith in Christ. And that faith is a gift from God, let us not forget. Faith is the working element that makes the sacraments effective. He uses sensible signs that mean something. Water is necessary. Bread and wine are necessary. But it's by faith that God makes them effective. Not just a memorial that we do to remember, it's not somehow magical in that it changes what its substance is, but spiritual, but no less real, because God promises to feed us this way. We are a body-soul nexus. That's how God has made us. And the sacraments are one way in which he touches us physically in a supernatural way by faith. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? He takes two elements, wine and bread, and gives them sacramental value in the Lord's Supper. But notice the specific wording. It's by faith. This is important. But a good question that arises if we believe this about the Lord's Supper, and we do. 
How often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper in this light? I remember when I came to Redeemer, we celebrated the Lord's Supper once a month. It had always been our practice. That's the practice of many Christian churches. We started studying it early on and kind of came back to it over and over again. But eventually kind of just set in about 2001, I believe, decided to really hammer this out. As elders of the church, we should be able to really uh, give an explanation as to why we practice things the way we do. So we started studying the Word. And Acts 2.42 was one of the passages. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Breaking of bread is most usually referred to as the communion, or at least communion was part of the breaking of bread. And they did this regularly in the early church. They did it as regularly as they studied the apostles' teaching, and they prayed. So, why not do it regularly? Well, month a month, once a month is regularly, right? Well, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, though, in its totality, and you don't have to now, but listen to some of the continued phrases that come up as Paul talks about this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, is it not for better, but for worse? And he's addressing division that had come up in the church. Then he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church. So there's a clear reference to their regular coming together as a church. Then in verse 20, he says, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Then later in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat. He continually connects together the coming together and the eating of the bread, drinking of the cup. So it was impressed upon us that as often as we met together, on a regular weekly basis anyways, we should partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's how we decided this. And of all the great benefits Redeemer has been to me personally in my walk with the Lord and your encouragement, my brothers and sisters, our fellowship around the apostles' teaching, few things have been more valuable in my life than regular communion. Every week I'm confronted with the gospel. I hope I am by the sermon. I hope I am by the liturgy and the singing, no doubt. But I cannot escape the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus for me, ever. Sometimes my well-meaning Baptist brethren will say, why don't you have an altar call? We've got one every week. Do you know Jesus? Are you rightly related with God? This is a picture of what he did for you. He spilled his blood and he broke his body for you. Do you believe this? That's your call. We need the Lord's Supper. God in his wisdom has ordained it for us to feed us. Well, the right question also is what should be used for the Lord's Supper? And by now you've no doubt noticed that our catechism question reads, The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving of bread and wine. According to Christ's appointment, his death is shown forth. Jesus is specific in his appointing bread and wine. There's no question. Uh, we could see this. There are really wine itself when you consider it for all the sensitivities there are about it in modern America, especially evangelical modern America, there are 271 references to wine in Scripture throughout. And wine actually is never once depicted negatively or sinful. It's actually viewed and depicted quite positively when used in the right way. And let me be very clear, as Scripture is, that the abuse of wine or drunkenness is absolutely and unequivocally a sin condemned by Scripture every time you turn. There's no question about this whatsoever. But on the other hand, the right use of wine is shown as a blessing, a great blessing, in fact. In Psalm 104, 14 and 15, the psalmist praising God says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. A clear blessing of God, wine is shown to be. Much earlier than that, in Genesis 14, when Abraham is meeting Melchizedek, this kind of Christ-like figure, 
Melchizedek praises Abraham for his covenantal status with God. And listen to what Melchizedek says and does. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, Abraham, God, the most high possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So he blessed the name of Abraham for whom because he was united together covenantally with God. And so doing, he gives him this offering of wine and bread. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, there's part of the blessings and the curses section where God says, if you obey, these good things happen. If you disobey, these bad things happen. He says, because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. By the time of Jesus, no doubt, it was pictured as a blessing. It was something he received as a blessing from God, not as a curse. In fact, the only time it's shown as a curse is when there is a lack of it. In Deuteronomy 28:39, you shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. That was their curse, that they would have no wine because of their disobedience. It's very symbolic, very important, and there's a reason Jesus picks this, as we see. It's even depicted as having health for one's health, as the Apostle Paul says, no longer drink only water to Timothy, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for the frequent ailments. Symbolic of God's blessings. But perhaps the most important passage to consider when we wrestle with this question, what should be used for the Lord's Supper, comes in John chapter 2, when the Lord Jesus comes to a wedding. This is important to understand. Wine was made uh, from grapes that grew and were harvested at one time of the year. Then they were stored, the, the grape juice was pressed out, and they were put in these this wine skins or these vats, and they fermented. In fact, as a word on how it happens, uh, within five days, grape juice left without pasteurization or refrigeration, which was not invented until 1869. Without those things, it ferments immediately. So within five to ten days, it's fermented. It's just by definition, grape juice is wine. There is no word for grape juice because it's only wine. And so Jesus comes to a wedding where there is already wine that has been sitting at different levels. The good wine is sat for a long time. The lesser wine is just newly fermented, and it's the stuff that they give kind of after people have had too much of the other kind of wine. But that's irrelevant to Jesus' purpose. He's simply coming to a wedding that has run out of wine. And look what he does. Listen to what he does. You know the story. I'll read it. Listen, consider it. John 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the, mo- uh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And after an interchange about the will of God and what time it was for him to reveal himself, he did agree to fix the problem. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill uh, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take, uh, take it to the master of the feast. So he took it. The master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine. He didn't know where this came from. He knew it wasn't his. He wasn't going to give this to these people. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine till now. So Jesus not only turns it to wine, he turns it to good wine, which is symbolic of wine that takes time to taste good. 
Very symbolic as Jesus turns water to wine. He doesn't do with any offense or any kind of hesitation about turning it to wine. This is not a problem. He turns it to wine. Gives us important insight. But we have to ask ourselves the question, well, you guys have been using grape juice ever since you've been here, Pastor Tony. I know. I understand that. Why have we used grape juice? Well, it comes back to, it goes back to the temperance movement in this country, and that's literally where it comes from. The temperance movement is a movement among well-meaning people, no doubt, who saw a gross abuse of alcohol, and their reaction was to make it completely illegal and that people should be, should abstain from it altogether. And of the 16 original signers of the temperance statement, seven were clergymen. And even though it was not upheld at a wide level, it started to kind of ripple through churches. And and more stuff got added on to just that. It was basically a movement of extra-biblical proportions, to say the least. To stop the abuse of alcohol, something the church should be about, no doubt. But it was at that time, in 1869, when a man named Welch invented pasteurization of grapes. That's the first time you could even have grape juice. There was no grape juice before this time when he discovered how to stop their fermenting process. The two came together in many evangelical churches ever since then have just simply been using grape juice. That's the real reason why. And that's kind of the suit that we follow when we started the church. I think that's part of being where we are culturally and so forth is the way things worked out here. That's really the best answer I can give you. The wine in the Bible wasn't alcoholic, some people say. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible that it wasn't. There is no other such thing. They didn't have refrigeration, didn't have pasteurization. Grapes were picked at one time of the year. They had to last the whole year. Absolutely, it was alcoholic. What should we do? Well, your pastors and elders have given this much thought and prayer for several months. We've unanimously come to think that we should use wine instead of grape juice for communion. For some, this may be startling. I understand that. It could be shocking to you even. But please consider the biblical teaching that I briefly overviewed. I think you will see that it is wine that was used and prescribed by Jesus. In this light, starting next month, we'll have wine for communion. Now, so as not to cause a stumbling block to those who aren't quite ready for that, or for such a change, or for some who have a personal reason why they do not want to partake in wine, we'll still offer grape juice. It'll be in the outer ring. You'll see it clearly distinguished, so you can have your choice of this. We want to be caring and respectful, but at the same time, We want to act upon a biblically-based conviction that the Lord has been working in us as a session through his word. So this is why, and this is how we'll proceed, and I hope this will actually be a blessing to you. And please recognize, if if this is a little bit uh, startling to you, please recognize you have a teaspoon and a half of wine. If you took the regular dose of NyQuil, it has twice the alcohol in it, and that's not a joke. So, keep that in mind. Don't go home and drink too much NyQuil either. (laughs) And by the way, the exact kind of bread that Jesus used isn't clear, but I'm pretty sure it's not the crackers we use either. So we're going to bread, too. Uh, The exact kind of bread is more debated than you can imagine, uh, but it's a, a kind of flatbread most likely, and we'll have that starting in February as well. No choice on that one, I'm afraid. To whom or whom should partake in the Lord's Supper? That's another important question discussed and to be considered. Question 97, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? This is very important we ask and answer this question. It's of considerable debate in the church. Uh, When should someone start taking communion? I grew up Roman Catholic and I remember going through a whole process of, 
of First Communion. And their view of the sacrament is totally different than ours. And so that was a part of the way they went through it. But there was this, this process of education you go through and then you would go before uh, people and give answers and so forth and you would start taking communion. Various traditions have done this different ways. But look at the answer that is given in question 97. What is required for the worthy receiving the Lord's Supper? I think this captures the Bible's teaching well. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith, to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Now, most of us as adults don't even fill all that out. However, let's think about it and respect what the divines have said here in this answer, and I think it will help guide us. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Let a person examine himself then so as to eat of the bread and so eat the bread and drink the cup. So it should be that a person is able to rightly recognize the gospel itself and be able to say it. Doesn't mean they can't have faith in Christ before they can say it. It's not what I'm saying. Genuinely be a believer, just not be able to express it yet. Small children. God can give the gift of faith to anybody he wants to. But the expressing of it's important as we partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And so the way we've tried to practice it as a church, rather than err on the side of saying that anybody that's in the church should automatically take it, whether they understand what's going on or not, to the other side, where where you go through such a long process that a person's old before they start taking it, well past when they should be. So what we've tried to aim for is parents and session working together to discern when a child is ready to discern what the table means, that they believe in Jesus, that they they see what it represents and they trust in Christ. That will embody that which is expressed here. And that's something that we work together, parents parents and, and, and session together. Session given the charge of, of guarding these things in the church. But we recognize the valuable input, the necessary input we have to have from parents in this. And this is how, how we try to practice it. Now, I want to say also, for those who say, well, what about, you know, understanding isn't an issue in baptism. Why should it be an issue in community? I recognize that, appreciate that. But, but there's not the same charge given about baptism that a person should examine themselves. They're just not. Uh, there, there's a, a level of perpetuity that happens with the Lord's Supper on a regular basis that we want to be sure is clear for all of us, not just for children. Now, having said that, recognize the covenantal headship that a parent has. When a parent brings their child for baptism, they do so by virtue of the faith God has given them. And by headship, the child is baptized. No one balks at the idea that our religion is, is, is totally about headship, the headship of Christ representing us, the cross. Likewise, if you partake in a worthy manner as a parent, your baby receives the benefits of grace that you receive when you partake in the Lord's Supper. Covenantal headship extends there too. It's a great blessing for the whole community as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And as our children grow, we talk more and more with them about what this means. What do these things mean? And we talk about them regularly. They're not excommunicated because they're not partaking. They're part of our partaking. And we clearly communicate that to them and look forward to the day that they make that clear distinction that this covenant is with me as well. Worthy receivers are not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. I understand why churches probably don't go into this too deeply because it's so complex, there's so much to talk about, but they're the means of grace. They're the tools for spiritual growth. We, can't, we shouldn't ignore them. They will help us in our growth, in our walk with Christ. Just as it takes 
Lots of planning and preparation to climb a mountain like Everest. So this Christian life requires tools. It requires thinking. It requires focusing upon these things. And I think now, just being reacquainted, we're equipped with things we need to climb. We've got our boots on, the Word of God to give us stability. We are suited with the identity of God's people by baptism. There's great security in this. We are supplied the tool to climb, to assist our progress, the Lord's Supper, on a regular basis to help us go further. We'll make it. We still have one more powerful tool yet next week, that of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have delved into some deep subjects and complex ones with all sorts of different, uh, different angles to look at and consider, Scripture to study. I pray that you would make us to just be hungry for your word, even whet our appetites through this, Lord that we would consider and study your word even more diligently, recognizing that if you put it in your word, it's important for us to consider. Give us grace to do this. Give us humility as we study it, Lord. We could be wrong on things. Help us to know this, not in a way that makes us insecure, but that keeps us humble, that we constantly rely upon your word and your Holy Spirit to help us clearly understand things. Lord, most of all, I pray for my brothers and sisters here gathered that you would Give them a real sense of need to apply diligently the means of grace, your holy word, the sacraments, and prayer. I pray, God, that you would grant to each of my brothers and sisters a wonderful year in life in Christ as they consider these tools that you have given us so graciously. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.